This is an AMI podcast. I'm Chaitanya Gupta, and this is the Pulse. Although Pride Month comes once a year, thinking about sexuality and disability is a year-round project. For people with disabilities, there are many barriers to recognizing our sexuality. Often, there's pervasive stigma about sex and disability. People with disabilities are thought of as either asexual or hypersexual. And even when there is a conversation about sexuality and disability, that conversation seems to assume heterosexuality and cisgender identity as the norm. LGBTQ people with disabilities have unique challenges around accessing intimacy, healthcare, and community. But what the queer community shares in common with disability activism is a critique of the effect of normalization on embodiment, desire, and access. Today, we discuss queering disability. It's time to put your finger on the pulse. Hello and welcome to the Pulse on AMI Audio. I'm Jyothi Gupta. Pride Month seems to almost be behind us, but I did not want to let the month go by without talking a little bit about the intersections of being queer and disabled. I want to acknowledge that as a straight woman, even though I have a disability, I recognize that I have a lot of privilege going into this conversation. but it is an important conversation to have and joining me today is queer and disabled educator artist activist and someone you may have heard from before on this channel kate welch kate welcome to the pulse it's really good to have you on the program hi thank you so much for having me Now remind me Kate I know you did this a couple of years back but did we not talk to one another in oh I want to say 2016 when you were working on the equity buttons Probably I think so yeah the activism that I've done around disability um has spanned quite a lot of years yeah Yeah and I remember thinking at the time wow that is such a smart idea it's one of those things where you're like oh, I wish I thought of it you know um oh, so you. <laughs> so you know you you do a lot of really interesting things you wear and have worn many hats uh but mm. right now you're delivering and you're offering a number of workshops uh geared to the community Tell us a little bit about some of the workshops that you're offering and who you think would be a suitable audience. Yeah, so um I'm building a collective right now that I'm calling Crip Collective and um it's a bu- it's a bunch of um disabled folks. We have uh queer and trans uh BIPOC BIPOC folks who are um highly uh centered in our collective. Um and what we what we do is we um are for the past 3 years we've been facilitating workshops called unpacking ableism and um these workshops are focused on um basically it's basically an anti-oppression workshop with a focus on disability because a lot of anti-oppression workshops talk about racism or transphobia 
um, Islamophobia, all the different things, but fail to talk about disability. And so I decided to create a disability-specific anti-oppression workshop. And so that's the workshop that I've been running with other folks uh, for over three years now. And we've been running it at healthcare centers and community organizations. And also recently, I started running workshops specifically for disabled folks about internalized ableism and how to recognize it and how to um, challenge it in our everyday, um, our everyday going around. Yeah. And when you have conversations with people with disabilities, how often does sex and sexuality come up? And are people welcome to bring in their sexual identities into the workshop as a space to investigate, I guess, the intersections of sexuality and disability? Yeah. So in the workshop, we actually have a whole section of the workshop that talks about intersectionality. Um, and we talk about gender and sexual diversity within that portion of the workshop, as well as I've actually um, facilitated this workshop specifically for queer and trans communities with the Bricks and Glitter Festival that's at Unit 2, as well as Youthline, LGBTQ Youthline. So I do have a, a specific interest in talking about disability um, and intersectionality within LGBTQ communities, especially because I do identify as queer. Um, And so my community is the queer and trans community, and my community is also the disability community. So I think it's important to have conversations um, across the communities. And when you think about uh, the Pride Month and especially around the Pride Parade, for example, in Toronto, we've had a lot of discussions just in Toronto about racism in the Pride Parade. But mm. to what extent do you think the, for want of a better term, the mainstream LGBTQ movement, to what extent do you think that, it, that has managed to embrace and create space for disability? Unfortunately, I think that um, it really hasn't. Um, even the, um, like, if you look at the accessibility features of Pride, of, like, events that are sponsored by Pride Toronto, um, they're few and far between. A lot of uh, LGBTQ spaces in Toronto and elsewhere are not actually even physically accessible and not to mention other things like ASL interpreters or low scent spaces or spaces that are have uh, less uh, sensory stuff for autistic folks. So unfortunately, I think that uh, the mainstream like LGBTQ community uh, is not not doing a very good job around disability inclusion. But play, but people like Black Lives Matter actually do have a uh, disability justice framework for for their or- organizing. And so I think there's a lot of coalition building between various activist uh, communities, um, which gives me a lot of hope. Yeah, that was a, kind of like you, a short answer. <laughs> <laughs> um, but if you were to flip the script a little bit, what about the disability movement? So there are so many issues that the disability yeah. movement engages with at any given time. How much would you say the issue uh, that issues around sexuality or the issues relevant to the LGBT communities factor into 
the disability movement and the disability organizing that we might come across? Yeah, um, I think unfortunately it's it's a, a similar thing where LGBTQ folks aren't um, included in a lot of disability main like quote unquote mainstream disability um, communities. We see places like various disability orgs that that really are very straight, very white, very cisgender. They're not good at at asking or using pronouns. Um, they're not good at being inclusive. When I when I've been in uh, dis- disability spaces, oftentimes I'm the only queer person. Um, I know that like my partner in various disability spaces is often the only trans person, and so it's it's really um, something that we really need to push for within disability within disability community is like how do we queer disability community um, and how do we make sure that things like talking about pronouns is actually like very regular within disability community because right now it's not unfortunately but you know in the monologue I was saying uh, that there is at least the way I see it a certain amount of affinity within the LGBT between the LGBTQ movement and the disability movement both are sort of trying to trouble this idea of what is normal or normative. Yeah. So when these two things don't, yeah, but when these two things don't come together in the way that apparently they're not, is there a lost opportunity for social justice work? Totally. I think that coalition building is, is so important. And I mean, we see within, we see within like academia spaces, a lot of uh, like intersections of like, um, queer studies and crip studies, um, looking at like problematizing, like what is normal thinking about like, how do we queer the body? How do we like, how do we crip time? All of these different things. Um, and so there is a lot of like fluidity between disabled, like particularly politicized queer and crip communities. But I think there is a lack of this kind of coalition building within the mainstream, like gay movement and disabled movement. But there, there's so much overlap, right? Like, for example, we look at like marriage equality within disabled communities. Like there is no marriage equality, right? Because like, if we're on ODSP, we can't, we can't actually get married to the person that we are with, that we're in love with because um, our our supports will be taken away, right? And so that's like mm-hmm. an example of how, like, you know, in the mainstream, that could be like an issue that is like overlapping between queer and disabled communities. Yet there still seems to be this separation between the two. But yeah, I agree. I think that like from an from an academic point of view, from like a philosophical or there's a lot of overlap. There's a lot of overlap with these two with these two communities, and you also see the people who are doing the more progressive work are queer and trans disabled folks, right? Like mm-hmm. it's queer and trans disabled people of color who are leading, you know, the most radical movements for Black Lives Matter or the or abolition work, right? So. Someone like Leah Lakshmi has been has written a book called Care Work that's like redefining what it means to 
think about um, care within capitalism. And so it is it is people at the intersections who are who are doing the most progressive things. But the mainstream is like behind. My guest today is queer and disabled activist and artist Kate Welch. She's in Toronto. Kate, in the last couple of years, you've been doing some counseling work with people with disabilities. Tell us about how that took off. Yeah, so um, I've been doing work in the mental health field for many years now. I originally was working with LGBTQ folks at Sherburne at the 519 um, and with the Mood Disorders Association of Ontario. And then I was working in a shelter for a while. And through this kind of journey of uh, of my mental health, like professional life, I was also on the side also doing my disability justice activism, running the workshops, um, building, trying to build community. And I noticed a real lack of um, specific supports for disabled folks around mental health. Um, and so mm-hmm. I started my private practice, and I call it CRIP Counseling, and I specifically um, work with folks around internalized ableism and how it affects our mental health. And there's been so much uptake in it. I feel like I'm like, I finally found my calling. I feel so privileged to be able to work with the folks that I work with. I now have like a wait list and I'm actually just about to start running um, group therapy um, that's going to be starting in July or August. Yeah. So I, um, I noticed a gap and decided that I wanted to try to fill it. Mm. I was about to ask you about that because there is, of course, a lot of conversation about mental health and diminishing mental health during the pandemic, for example. Mm -hmm. But even before that, there were wait lists and there were gaps. So how readily do you think um, the caring professions, things like, you know, social workers or um, psychotherapists, how readily have they embraced the sort of intersectional work that you're trying to do? Um, I mean, what does it mean for someone to seek therapy, uh, but not really have someone who can address the many facets of their identity, whether it's, you know, their LGBTQ identity, whether it's their sexuality? Why is it, why is the work that you do so important? Yeah, I think, unfortunately, um, a lot of therapists who are not disabled or who are not LGBTQ are can be harmful to our communities. So either um, like assuming that someone is straight and cis or assuming that their disability, um, you know, makes them less than or makes, makes you uh, like not able to work or all of those different things, like the assumption, the ableist assumptions um, in society, like, therapists have those ableist assumptions in society too, mm-hmm. right? Like we're, we're all part of uh, growing up in this ableist world. And so um, there is, there are those assumptions within, um, within the, the helping professions. And I think also like um, social work schools or psychoeduc or psychotherapy schools, don't teach properly about disability and they do use like the medical model of disability instead of the social model. And the medical model is like thinking that disability is a burden or that we have to cure disability. And so 
oftentimes therapists can actually cause harm to folks. And I, um, the, the clients that I have, most of them have been, um, have been harmed by uh, therapists in the past, either indirectly um, by just being having ableist assumptions or being like actively ableist or actively like trying to um, do therapy for them to um, make them like, for example, like make them not neurodivergent anymore. Like that, that type of therapy is actually like super harmful. Right. And so um, being someone at the intersections of queerness and disability, I can provide a unique type of therapy that is really like not, that is really like actively anti-ableist, actively uh, anti-heterosexist, all of these things, right? And so not only am I, um, am I providing therapy, but I'm also like being able to kind of almost be that like that peer um, or at least someone with a shared identity. Mm-hmm. When you look at your website, uh, they say that your therapy is healing is is based on a healing justice model and is trauma informed. First of all, for those of us who aren't familiar with the terminology, what do you mean when you say healing justice and trauma informed, and why are those things so essential to your work as a therapist? Yeah, so um, basically, healing justice and trauma informed part of this work is acknowledging how oppression um, in, impacts our um, our lived experience, right? And so, like, actually, like, living in an ableist world, having to face oppression every day um, can cause trauma, can um, make our mental health worse. And so when we think about um, healing justice, we think about healing as not just a personal thing, but rather as a societal thing, as something, um, as part of the work to dismantle certain like systems of oppression. And so in my one-on-one counseling work and my group work, I acknowledge how, um, how systems of oppression impact our mental health and also taking the individual out, like out of the, a lot of mental health, like is so individualized and is like, well, it's you who is not reacting to stress or it's you who is uh, not doing a good job coping rather than looking at it as like, actually our society is making a world that is, um, that is harmful for certain Mm -hmm. folks. Right. And in particular, queer and trans disabled folks, um, the world is especially harmful for us. And so the healing justice is really like looking at looking at healing as how do we build a more just world in in order to facilitate healing. And it's not just like the individual's responsibility. And then trauma informed is really important to me as well, because disabled folks, like most all disabled folks are have experienced trauma, um, especially medical trauma. So what it's like for our bodies to be invaded um, or had medical procedures done to us. And a lot of the times, like, that's even as kids, right? And so being trauma-informed means that, like, I am acknowledging how trauma affects either reactions or feelings, all of those different things, and really working on 
on our mental health from this perspective of like it's not just the individual and their need to to work on their mental health, but actually like how have systems or other individuals harmed um, harmed them? You know, I I think in the work that you've done, you've had a chance to experience both sides of the coin. You've dealt with a lot of individuals and their individual issues, but also uh, had some time to think through the systemic issues that are at play. In the few minutes that we have left, if you had to make some um, concrete recommendations for what needs to happen to be more inclusive of uh, queer people and, and trans people with disabilities, what changes do you want or hope or need to see? Mm-hmm. Oh, man, that's a huge question. <laughs> I think, I mean, I think there's a few ways to go at it. I think there's looking at things from a representation point of view. So, you know, how are we we represented or not uh, in in media? So the importance of having our voices heard, the the importance of like merely the importance of like, hey, look, we exist. We are a possibility is is really important. So I think like being able to see to see people like us in in the media, you know, if if I had seen a a queer disabled young person when I was like 15 20 years ago, I might have come out sooner because I didn't actually know it was even a possibility, right? Being like I didn't think that disabled people were were allowed to be queer or allowed to be trans, right? And so I I never saw um what it was like to to see someone um, who is disabled and queer, queer or trans. Um, so there's a representation. Um, and then I think um, in terms of community, we just need to make sure that our communities are actively centering disabled folks, actively centering like queer and trans disabled folks, maybe even actively centering like BIPOC queer and trans disabled folks, right? And so making sure that and that we as queer and trans disabled folks are, um, and and when I say disabled, I mean disabled, chronically ill, sick, neurodiverse. There's lots of people use different terms, and some people don't even like like the word disabled or or feel like they can claim it. But yeah, so I think like making sure that we're involved in the conversations, making sure that we are part of you know, part of the workplace, part of society, that we are able to make decisions for ourselves. Like, sometimes it's as simple as, like, making sure that with our PSWs that we feel completely comfortable being um, out to to PSWs or that we feel completely comfortable if, like, we have an invisible disability that we feel comfortable being, like, I claiming disability in queer and trans communities. So, um, I think like honoring the intersections and and being able to be our true selves. Well, that's yeah. amazing. Kate Welch, <laughs> thank you very much for being on the program today. It was a pleasure to have you. Thank you so much. Kate Welch is a Toronto-based writer, educator, artist, and activist, as well as a counsellor. You can always check out Kate's website for more information. And of course, if you missed any of our conversation today, you can find the podcast on your favorite podcast platforms. 
I'd like to thank Kate Welsh for being on the program today. Nasreen Abdul-Majid is our technical producer and Andy Frank is the manager for AMI-audio. Thanks a lot for listening. Stay safe and have a wonderful rest of your day. This was an AMI podcast. For more accessible media, visit AMI.ca.